0: Well, as we turn into this passage i I must confess the the sinking feeling uh, as I begin of the inadequacy of trying to expound such a big uh, section that is as the old Puritans used to say, so pregnant with with instruction and with with teaching. I was just expressing that uh, bewilderment to. To Peter bef- before the the service, in a sense, I don't want to get bogged down by looking at the trees. I want to give you a a, a forest-wide uh, look at this passage because this passage goes together. And so often, as uh, all the old, uh, the late Doctor Lloyd Lloyd-Jones said, we we lose sight of the forest because of the trees. So we will deal with this passage in uh, as a whole. We will go through it, but we will not stop particularly to consider in depth a, a single verse, but we'll try and see the, the bigger picture. And hopefully by seeing the bigger picture, even the, the, the verses that uh, get left out that are not considered in depth will, will, beca- will become alive to us, perhaps in the, during the week as we chew the cause uh, of this passage Jesus had just, in his fourth section of this sermon, he had just addressed how uh, we deal. Uh, he dealt with how we uh, perform uh, our spiritual practices, like doing charitable deeds, praying, fasting, away from the spotlight, in the secret place. And now Jesus turns his attention to the public demeanor of those who are citizens of the kingdom. Now, I will emphasize this throughout. This passage, just as much as the rest of the sermon on and about, was not preached to an unbelieving audience. It was a a sermon uh, that was preached for the believers, for the disciples. So what is happening here? As I've mentioned in the past, and I think it is important for us to see this, this is forest kind of perspective on this passage and on the whole of the book of Matthew actually Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience and he is very much concerned about presenting how Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies and expectations how he is the the coming together of all the hope of Israel and how he fulfills these things and we've seen haven't we the the patterns that uh, that Matthew, so masterfully, under the inspiration of the Spirit, picks up how he presents this picture of a new exodus, of Jesus going into the wilderness and being tempted there, and and succeeding and coming out victorious where the devil, had uh, where the Adam and Israel had once failed. All of this is meant for us to see and to understand. And Jesus is presented in the Sermon on the Mount Primarily, not exclusively, as we'll see, as the new Moses. The, the, the mount, wherever Jesus is, there are some discussions about that, but it is uh, inconsequential. The mount becomes the, the new Sinai, and the Jesus' utterances in this sermon are, are in a way, a, a new law, the law of the new kingdom. It is not actually new. It is going deep into the heart of what the law was about, And Jesus expounding it. It is about righteousness. A righteousness that exceeds even the righteousness of the Pharisees. So Jesus is presented, and that's what we've been seeing uh, in the last few weeks as a new Moses. But in this passage, I would argue, and I think I'm in good company, that Jesus is presented by Matthew not as the new Moses, but in this section as the new Solomon. The greater Solomon, the one who is a, a better Solomon. Look at the patterns, uh, forest perspective again. Look at the patterns that are presented to us. What is, the, 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 what is it that we see in the writings of Solomon, in particular in the book of Proverbs, in the wisdom literature? It's uh, using natural things to teach uh, spiritual principles. Solomon says, look at the ant. How it toils and observe his ways and and be wise like the ant. Jesus says, "Look at the birds, look at the grass, look at the lilies. Learn from them." Like Solomon, J- uh, Jesus presents two ways of life. That is clear here, isn't there? It. Solomon speaks of Lady Folly and Lady Wisdom. Which one will you follow? And Jesus here presents. Two uh, approaches to life: the the one approach of being self-centered and and egotistical and and uh, and uh, envious and laying treasures on earth, and the second perspective, the second way of life, the one of storing up, laying up treasures in heaven. Jesus is clearly uh, using the same language. Like Solomon, Jesus is concerned with the way we regard and use the things of the world. Just as Proverbs is full of practical wisdom, this section of, of the Sermon on the Mount is practical wisdom. Jesus, the greater Solomon, is concerned with our attitude towards the things of this world, towards food and drink and clothing and money and riches and wealth. Jesus is uh, reshaping and refocusing and and laying out uh, for us what is the the perspective the wisdom of those who are citizens of the kingdom in a word if i was to summarize this whole section into a sentence better not a word but a sentence jesus's aim in this passage is to steer us away from greed and to foster in us a balanced care and a desire for worldly things. Let me say that again. Jesus is trying to steer us away from greed and to foster in us, to, to create in us a balanced care for, and desire for worldly things. Jesus is not saying that worldly things are wrong, and we'll talk a little bit about this in a moment. But he's, he wants us to have a balance, a moderated, approach to it he's saying that those who are citizens of the kingdom their desires and their worldly cares are fundamentally completely different from the the desires and the way that the world craves for them you might wonder what do you mean by balance and or moderation in this context moderation uh, an old puritan said that is a, a virtue born moderation is a virtue that is born out of a mindset shaped and calmed by the fear of God, it is a virtue being moderate being being balanced is a virtue that is shaped and calmed by the fear of God, to put it differently, when our hearts are centered on God, our desires, our affection, as the old Puritans used to say, our, our, our most instinctive desires, our affections are uh, ...for worldly things... ...they don't disappear... ...we still need food... ...we still need clothing... ...we still need uh, money... ...to, to, to pay for, for things... ...but those things... ...fall into the right places... ...that's the problem with the world... ...that's the problem with the unrepented, ...unregenerate world... ...those things... ...start occupying places that belong only to God... ...but when we are... ...born again by the Spirit those desires, those affections, those instinctual, uh, almost uh, unperceptible motivations of our heart get placed in their right right places. You can see this from the story of uh, of the fall. Before the fall, in the the original uh, state, in innocence, Adam his focus, his affection, his desires were properly aligned. He desired the good things. His love and his desires were, in a sense, rooted in God. And all the other things flowed from a proper understanding and love for God. But he sinned. And since the fall, our present condition... This is the the total depravity element of it. You know, the the five points of Calvinism, uh, the total uh, depravity side of it tells us that our desires, our affections have been so marred, so disfigured that we are centered, not in God, not rooted in God, but we are rooted in self. And all, uh, all that we do, all our seeking of joy uh, is rooted in fulfilling and self-satisfying our most depraved desires They are not rooted in God. We cease to love God and resulting in our desires becoming misdirected. In this section, Jesus says, those who are born again of the Spirit, their desires their is, uh, is, proper, uh, is properly restored. There is still self-love. Christianity is not a, a, a religion. Christianity is not a, 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 does not cause us to, to not love ourselves. But we love ourselves in light of God. We love God. And then, because we love God, all those affections, all of those desires, properly aligned, drive us to do things that are aligned with the will of God. Our goal becomes to control... Uh, Uh, Our goal then becomes to glorify God even in the things of this life. So again, let me emphasize, this is for disciples. This is for those who are in the kingdom. Jesus is not making an argument uh, and not saying things that anyone can follow. In fact, no one can follow them unless the Spirit comes in and regenerates that person. And that is why... The wisdom of Jesus so often jars the world. When you come to a passage like this, how does the world see Jesus? They see him like this hippie kind of cynic. Uh, oh, don't worry about those things. Go and, and, uh, and, 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 and pursue uh, and go into green fields, pursue butterflies. And this uh, almost 1960s idea of a hippie. The world looks at these things and says, this is foolishness. It is not wisdom to the world; it is actually foolishness. Look at the grass, look at the lilies look at the look at the 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 sparrows and the and the birds. But what is really true here is that Jesus is not speaking to them. Jesus is speaking to us, and the point of this is not to change our ways. This is part maybe important before we come to to look at uh, at the passage a little bit more uh, in focus. Jesus is not primarily I'm not, not saying that he is not trying to do that but that's not the primary motivation Jesus is not to, trying to primarily change how we act this is not a call, this is not a, a, a call to uh, changing of ways, to repentance necessarily, this is a call for self examination this is a call to see how this applies to our own life, to examine ourselves and our ways to see if we are in the way. And perhaps the best way of approaching this, and at least it's the way that I think is the most helpful for us, is to put it in four questions. It's four sections. And to answer this in four, uh, in four questions, to self-examine ourselves with these four questions. Number one, what is your treasure? Is it in heaven or is it on earth? Number two, what is the nature of your sight? How are your eyes? What are you looking at? Number three, who do you serve as your master? And number four, what takes precedence in your life? So firstly, where is your treasure? Where is your treasure? Is it in, on heaven, in heaven or on earth? Jesus begins in verse 19 to 21 by speaking uh, of the kingdom of God in in treasure way, in, in ways or by speaking of the motivation of the citizens of the kingdom as one of uh, accumulating, laying up treasures. Firstly, he gives us a negative instruction and then a positive command and he then explains the reasoning behind these directives. Firstly, he says, do not lay its... a, it's a Uh, An instruction, a negative uh, uh, instruction, do not accumulate earthly treasures. And again, as we start here, I I, I need to emphasize, Jesus is not saying that all wealth is bad here. After all, wealth can be a blessing from God. There are many godly men and women who in the past have had uh, above and beyond their needs. The point here is not about uh, how much do you have in your bank account, how much pro- property or portfolio you, you have in, in, your, in, your, in your balance uh, sheets. The point here is that wealth or being driven by a accumulation of wealth is not good this admonition here is about self centered greedful uh, excessively greedy and avarice, uh, and uh, an avaricious uh, approach to wealth, as I said, scripture encourages us to be like the ant. What does the ant do in the, in the spring and summer the the ant accumulates to to face the harshness of the winter. And Jesus is not suggesting that we shouldn't enjoy the fruits of our labor. Again, this is not about taking away any joy from the way we interact with the world, from the things, the created things of this world. Jesus is here talking about having a balanced approach. Why are you trying to accumulate? If you are, where is your treasure? Where where are you focused on accumulating a treasure? Is it here on earth? You realize, that's what Jesus is saying. Do you realize that you come into this world with nothing? You come in naked and you go out naked. In, in, there in your coffin, a coffin, there will be no storage room for those earthly possessions. There is no storage compartment there. The problem here is when we become so attached and so concerned and so consumed about worldly goods, then we are about divine graces. When we lack compassion, when we lack a spirit of charitable uh, giving, when we lack to, uh, a spirit, uh, uh, when we have an approach that neglects the things of God, that's when we are piling in ourselves or storing up or laying up for ourselves treasures in, on earth. And what does Jesus say? These treasures are vulnerable They disappear, they decay, they are destroyed, and they are stolen. It's not about having money, but it's about allowing money to have us. The problem is not that you have uh, money in your pockets, the problem is that you allow money to rule over your heart. The love of money is the beginning of all troubles and then he gives us a positive command he says what not to do but he says what we are to do as citizens of the kingdom lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven Jesus says you are to accumulate these treasures in heaven and, and then the, the, the next question the, the natural question that we have where are these treasures where are these treasures that we are to accumulate in heaven well it's those treasures that cannot be taken away it's those treasures that are eternal, that, that, res, that, that flow from the, the eternal essence of God. Those things that are uh, undefilable. How do we do that? Well, we do that by growing in grace, by receiving from the Lord that which the Lord gives us. We store treasures in heaven by worshiping God, by growing in knowledge and grace, by growing in love for God and for our neighbor. We, we financially, because this passage concerns money as well, financially we grow in grace when, uh, when we, uh, we use money for, our king, for kingdom causes, when we don't allow money to consume us, when we in, invest in missions, when we invest in Christian schools, when we invest uh, in, in uh, relieving the poor. And the the explanation that Jesus gives is quite natural and and almost unnecessary, I would say. But I won't say it in that sense because Jesus puts it here. It's because it's necessary. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's the point. Treasures, or or the, the desires that we have, the things that propel us, those inward most uh, motivations those instinctual uh, things that draw us demonstrate where our heart is and the distinction between earthly and heavenly is quite clear if you're driven by 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 things of this earth uh, and if that's what takes precedence in your in your mind therefore all that you receive is temporal and material But if you are driven by the treasures in heaven, they are eternal and spiritual. And Jesus says, the citizens of the kingdom lay up for themselves treasures in heaven. And the the result is that we don't do this begrudgingly in a in a sort of I'll say a little bit more about this in a sort of ascetic monastic way um, monks in the monastery they they think that this this ascetic uh, life that deprives themselves of any uh, earthly uh, joy uh, is the way to accumulate treasures in heaven but Jesus has a much different approach to this what he's saying is that those things do not rule over our hearts but as we uh, uh, but in the pursuing things of heaven doesn't take away the our need and our enjoyment of things but actually as we pursue those things that becomes the our joy let me let me put it this using uh, jesus's uh, passage uh, in uh, his third discourse in the book of matthew matthew 13 as he is giving all those parables of the kingdom he speaks of a man who found a pearl of great price. And he went out, and he sold all that he had to buy that one pearl. For the joy, he treasured that that uh, pearl. It was the joy that uh, that of that uh, pearl, of that treasure hidden in the field, it brought joy to the hearts uh, of of those uh, figures in the parable. In the same way the citizens of the kingdom, the the children of God, the disciples of Christ, they have a correct perspective on these things, that we have joy as we pursue this thing, as we lay up treasures in heaven. Laying up treasures in heaven must and needs necessarily to involve and increase our joy in the God of heaven. Not the contrary. We're not accumulating merit the point here is not about accumulating merit. That's how this passage gets sometimes interpreted by, by uh, non-evangelical uh, interpreters. The point here is that we are laying up not a bank account, uh, a, a positive balance sheet in heaven of merit. We are accumulating those things. We are laying uh, treasures in heaven in the opposite way as we would lay treasures on earth. There are things that do not center on self. There are things that are centered in God, that magnify God. And the second question, as we consider the first, is how are your eyes? Do they have light? That's the second question that we have here. How are your eyes? It's a profound question. Again, and it relates to the question of the heart, In in Hebrew uh, way of thinking, the heart and the eyes are virtually indistinguishable. Uh, it's not so much that Jesus is presenting something different here, he's going at it from a different uh, point of view, imprinting in us the same idea, uh, just as much as in the third uh, uh, s- uh, part of this, or the third question. It, you, you read the, the Psalm 119 and you see that for the psalmist in Psalm 119, the heart and the, and the, the eyes are, are the same thing in, in, in many ways. It's about the inner motivation. It's about what propels our hearts. It's, it's, it, it's what uh, it moves us uh, to do what we do. But in the case of the eye, it's, it's slightly different because the eyes... Uh, ancient hebrews used to believe that the eyes had light that's how the the naturalistic way of looking i think that the eyes had light and and the more light you had the more you saw Um, and jesus uses this to explain if your eyes have light if therefore your eye is good your whole body will be full of light if your eyes can see the way if your eyes can see clearly uh, what is before us what is before you you will your whole body will be good. The eye affects the whole body, just as the heart directs the whole life. It's a, it's almost a, a, a an all-encompassing, uh, uh, a holistic uh, approach to, to the, to the whole thing. It's not just about the heart and the spirit. It's about the eye and the body. The, uh, it's not just about the, the pursuing the spiritual things. It's about pursuing also the earthly things with the right eye. It's an, it's a, it's an interesting way of, that Jesus puts it: having uh, the right uh, eye, having the one-eyed approach, the, the, the right-eyed approach to the things of God, will prevent us from being self-indulgent from being prideful, greedy, from being uh, uncharitable. Otherwise, you have the, the caution there. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are... Uh, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If, if therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness... It is, it is a very daunting conclusion that Jesus puts here. If, if all that you have is darkness, if you're blind and you cannot see these things, your whole body is in darkness. And how great is that darkness? The motivation, the eye of the soul. Uh, the motivation is the eye of the soul. And if the eye of the soul is clear... Uh, if, if our motivations are clear, our whole character will be right. But if our eyes be bad and polluted, our whole being is defiled. Let me read to you from the good old Charles Spurgeon. The eye of the understanding may here also be understood. If a man does not see things in the right light, He may live in sin and yet fancy that he is doing his duty. Understand what Spurgeon is saying here. There are many who are outwardly religious. The Pharisees are one example. In our days we have many examples of this. People who uh, fancy themselves to be religious. But actually their eyes are bad. Their whole body is in darkness. A man, he says, should live up to his light. But if that light is itself darkness, what a mistake his old course will be. If our religion leads us to sin, it is worse than having no religion. If our faith is presumption, if our zeal is selfishness, if our prayer is just a formality, our hope, a delusion, our experience is just infatuation, the darkness is so great that even our Lord holds up his hands in astonishment and says, how great is that darkness. Oh, that the Lord would give us that good single eye for God's glory. Because if we have it, all those other things fall into place. Which leads us to the third question. Perhaps some of us would think, oh, but I can have both. I can have both. The third question is, who is your Lord?" Is your lord God or is your lord Mammon? Is your lord the uh, the creator of the heavens and the earth or is your lord earthly things yourself actually the world? It's worth reflecting on this because some so many nowadays think and and fool themselves by thinking, well I can have both. I can just have both. I can lay some treasures here at the same time that I lay treasures there. I can amass earthly and heavenly treasures simultaneously. I'll do both, you know. I'll accumulate on both sides of eternity, and then I'll be happy. It's as if you convince yourself, or they convince themselves, let me put it that way, that you can uh, have those two things living harmoniously. But Jesus says no. He insists that no one can serve two masters. Especially because these two masters are so contrastingly opposed to one another. You either will love one and hate the other or you will cherish one and despise the other. There is no way that you can serve these two lords. There is no way that you can have one eye in light and one eye in darkness. There is no way that you can treasure in heaven and have your treasure on earth. You need to choose. And Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. You either hate one, love the other. You either are loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Jesus here uh, almost personifies the concept of wealth. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus never, never calls, uh, never used the term Lord to address uh, Satan, to address Caesar, to address the emperor, to address... Uh, the world, he uses the term Lord one time to address uh, anything else but the Lord. Uh, He uses it one time to address riches, mammon, to address uh, unrestrained uh, seeking uh, of wealth. And he personifies this. He's saying this is not an innocuous thing. Wealth is not a, 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 a thing that doesn't harm you it's not just merely an object or a concept it is an entity that has power over you and your life and Jesus depicts this this person the wealth, mammon, riches as a demanding master that seeks to have your undivided loyalty and allegiance you can it in, it's as if it enslaves you. It's a, an oppressive force that enslaves you. It's a, and isn't that what we see in our world? People go to extreme lengths because of money. You hear it, don't you? Money makes the world go around. In their lust for wealth, in their greed for, 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 for financial gain, They marry, they divorce, they kill, they die, they corrupt others, and they let themselves be corrupted. It is a Lord. And what Jesus says is that this Lord, just like the Lord, the real Lord, the true Lord, God, you cannot have have a half-hearted loyalty to him you're either serving him f- fully or you're not serving him at all. Same thing with God. God does not share his glory with anyone. He doesn't tolerate a divided heart, a divided attention. Two allegiances are no allegiances at all. There's no allegiance at all. It might be possible for a person to have two masters in, in other ways. But in this way, it is impossible to serve them. Well, let me put it like this. It might be possible for someone legally to have two masters, but let's be honest, you cannot serve them uh, correctly, effectively. It is impossible. And that's what Jesus is saying. And unambiguously he's saying, you cannot serve both God and wealth. And again, it's focused on, on that sense of where are your treasures And the question here for us is not where is your treasure. We consider that is who is your Lord. If you serve God, you cannot remain under bondage of mammon. But if your actions demonstrate that you're actually under the bondage of mammon, of wealth, that's your Lord. And if you are a slave to mammon, you cannot serve God. Even if you could pledge allegiance to both At the same time, it would be futile. God and love for wealth and earthly treasures will never agree. You can either live for this world or you live for the next. It is impossible to live for both. Where God reigns, lust of gain and wealth must go. But in teaching these truths... What, God, what Christ is trying to do is to shape, as I said, what Christ is trying to do uh, for us is to shape our desires, our affections, our, our motivations. He wants to balance our care and our desires. There is nothing, nothing wrong with uh, enjoying things of this world. Enjoying a nice plate of food, enjoying a, uh, the, the things of this world. It's when they take up our full uh, undivided attention. It's when they become our masters that we are wrong. So Jesus, I'm not advocating here, and I don't think Jesus is as well, uh, advocating for a monastical kind of living. Let's live like monks. He's also not advocating for a, some, uh, a mistake that the Gnostics in the first century used to make. For the, for the Gnostics, everything that was spiritual was good and everything that was earthly was sinful and bad. This uh, manic um, uh, understanding of, uh, of this earth bad and spiritual spirit good. They went to such an extent that, that they started denying that Christ came in the flesh. That's, that's Second John for you. Second John deals with a lot of this. They were so preoccupied with this idea that everything that is earthly is bad that they denied that Christ came in the flesh because Christ could not have come in the flesh because flesh is bad. No, flesh is not bad. And the things of this world are not bad because they were created by God. Paul goes even further. He says every created thing, every creature of God is good. 1 Timothy 4 verse 4. And nothing to be refused is to, uh, nothing to be refused if it's received with gratitude. It is not bad for us to love and to, and to enjoy the things of this world. They are things created by God, but they need to fall. They need to be balanced. Uh, They need to fall into the right places and they need to be balanced by the creator. God is not telling us that that we are to live a life filled with melancholy and and with with uh, 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 self-chastising kind of actions. A true heart, a true sight, a firm, unshakable uh, allegiance to the Lord God help us to regulate not to extinguish these things working is not bad eating is not bad having uh, clothes is not bad Nothing, none of these things are bad in and of themselves but it's when they become unregulated that they are bad the problem is not food, drink, rec- recreation or any other pleasure of life in God's creation. They're good because God created them. But it's when they take up our undivided allegiance. It's when they are uncontrolled desires that we fall into this problem. And again, I'm just looking at the time. N- we won't deal with, the, with the verse 23 and onwards. You can tell how much I've probably uh, deviated from the from the intended plan. We'll look at it next week. But let me say this. To af- to avoid falling into this uh, pit, how, how do we keep ourselves from uh, falling into the pit of earthly things, taking our uh, focus away from God? Number one, we should recognize that not only God provides for our necessity but he also grants us delights again god not only provides for for the things we need but he also provides us with with times of of rejoicing and delighting let us not be like the monks we are given as christians as uh, that's one of the points in galatians we are we are given liberty to enjoy the things it is The moderate and balanced desire of these things of the world, seen in the context of the God who provides them, that allows them, allows us to truly enjoy them in the the way that God intended them to be enjoyed. There are many things that in their right lawful use are good for us, are desirable. And even commendable. So for us, number one is to have a, a perspective that it is God who has given a, them to us. If we keep that in mind, we won't stray into allowing them to, to take the place where, that they shouldn't have. As you enjoy the things, remember that it was God that gave you to enjoy them. And again, an unregenerate heart will we'll twist this and we'll uh, use this as an excuse to over-enjoy and to use it for the, r- for the wrong reasons. But if you have the Spirit dwelling in you, you will not stray as often or, or, or indefinitely in these things. Keep reminding yourself of who provided these things for you. In our enjoyment of these things, we must also Control our 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 desires so that they don't distract us. A good rule of thumb to see if these things are starting to take away uh, and and occupying places that they shouldn't be is if they distract us from the things that we should be focused on—the laying up of treasures in heaven, the heavenly matters. A good question to ask in these things is: Is this adding? to my uh, enjoying uh, or to my uh, rejoicing in the Lord or is this taking away from it if it's taking away from it those things are not good or the way you're using them is not good because our primary joy our pri- primary goal i realize i'm sounding very much like a uh, uh, an american preacher that 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 sometimes Uh, emphasizes too much uh, seeking joy uh, and uh, and rejoicing um, in the Lord. But this is just good old Puritan theology. Our primary joy is rooted in our spiritual sustenance. It is primarily found in the sacrifice of Christ and our communion with him. And all our joy and satisfaction is and needs to be worked in relationship to this. In simpler terms. A good way to order, to balance and moderate our desire for the things of the world is to not attach uh, an affection to them that belongs to Christ alone. It's to attach ourselves and to desire first and foremost and and above all to find our joy and our peace and our rest and our fulfillment in Christ alone or in, in Christ. And as you have that, you then realize that the things of this world can and are meant to be enjoyed um, correctly. (coughs) Think of work. Let me give you an example to close. The conclusion will be a little bit, as they say, botched uh, because I wasn't going to end here. But think of work. Is work a good thing? 100 percent work is a, a good thing number one we are told time and time again that work is good in the book of proverbs in the uh, we see the examples in the histor- narratives work is good even jesus he doesn't take away from work we, we won't look at it here today but he's he's not saying that the 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 birds and the, uh, do not work he's saying that the birds have a correct perspective on work and the Father feeds them. But work is good because God created work. When God created Adam in innocence, in the perfect, uh, in, in in Eden, in the garden, Adam was created to work. So work is good. And work should be enjoyed when we see it as a providence from God. Sometimes we, we begrudge and we I like working. I have to go to work. But if you look at it in the right perspective, what do you say? Praise God, I get to go to work. Praise God, I get to, to be uh, active. Praise God, I get to earn uh, The money that I need. And in fact, the work that I have is God providing uh, for me. So in a a very real sense, it's God providing for me the food that I need. But so often in this world, what happens? In the unregenerate uh, world, people are so taken up about this and and so focused on laying up treasures on earth that work becomes a a determinant for them. Their work becomes a, a, a master that enslaves them. It's the pursuit of wealth; it enslaves them, or it's the pursuit of power and status. They want to climb that greasy pole up to the top so that they get to tell people what to do. When they actually, do, what they don't don't actually realize is that even when they get up there, it's that master in control of them that it's telling them what they need. And Jesus says, "Have a correct perspective on these things." believers we are to see these things as as a blessing as i get to do this and when we see that all our affections all our cares are correctly moderated and as we'll see next week anxiety is taken away but that's for next week let's let's pray our gracious God. As we look at a passage like this that peers so deeply into our own hearts that like a mirror presents to us a reflection of our own inadequacies Lord we we cannot but confess that we have not reached uh, the high standard that your word has laid up for us that we have failed that we have strayed Lord that we have desired things in an unjust unright unrighteous manner that we have not sought the heavenly treasures as we ought or that we have neglected Lord the the placing the things of this world in its right place, whether we resent your providences and your goodness to us or whether we uh, allow it to take your place or we we have all, uh, in one way or the other, failed miserably in this regard. Lord, we come confidently pleading for your forgiveness knowing that even though we are now citizens of the kingdom that we are but uh, uh, in, a, in a small fashion in an un- unfinished way as we sang Lord we are not the finished product we are not yet in glory where truly we will enjoy these things perfectly but in the meantime Lord We plead for your forgiveness. We ask, Lord, that you would continue the good work, that you would uh, lead us to that new creation that you will uh, finally finish in glory, where in heaven we will lay our crowns before you. But, Lord, that you would further regulate and moderate and balance our view of these earthly things, that we would lay up treasures in heaven. That we would grow in the graces, uh, uh, divine graces that you have called us to grow. That we put, would put away, Lord, those things that are not in accordance with your will. Oh, Lord, yet again we bring ourselves before you, seeking to be transformed by your word. Praying, Lord, that you would do so. In Jesus Christ's mighty name we pray.